thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. It's time to kick your shoes off, put your heels up, and listen to how to live your best barefoot lifestyle with your host, the barefoot podiatrist, Paul Thompson. Okay, welcome back to the Barefoot Movement Podcast, where my mission is to help you build a body that supports itself from the ground up rather than a body reliant on support. I'm your host, Paul Thompson, and today I have with me a super special guest, Helen Patteron. Welcome, Helen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, It's more of a pleasure for us to have you here. (laughs) So (laughs) Helen is a, a naturopath, a nutritionist, a medical herbalist, and an author of some amazing books. I have the gut health book uh, on my shelf at home that I tap into regularly to, to get my cooks to cook out of. No, I do try as well. My private chefs, that's right. So can you add anything to that, Helen, about yourself, what you specialise in? Um, yeah. Yeah, sure. So I've been in clinical practice since 2001, so 17 years now. And um, I've, I guess I've been through several little evolutions of my work in that time, as you do. Um, early on in the piece, I did a lot of work with children with autism, and that was just an incredible experience for me because it really um, gave me the field in which to explore real integrative medicine. You know, we were often um, advised as young graduates to go and find a niche or go and find a specialty and just really focus on that. But I found, I don't know, something about that rubbed me the wrong way because I thought, particularly early on in my career when I'm still learning a lot, I mean, we're always still learning a lot even to this day, but back then you're really green. (laughs) So I didn't want to cut myself off from learning a broad range of things by focusing on one particular area. It kind of seemed contrary to the whole naturopathic philosophy. Um, But then, fortunately, I became involved very early on with the Mind Foundation. So that's mindd.org. And they're a fantastic organisation. They're based here in Sydney, but they provide education and resources for both practitioners but also parents, carers, teachers, nurses, um, yeah, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists, the whole lot. There's different streams of education about supporting particularly children with autism or autism spectrum disorders, ADHD, asthma, eczema, all of that kind of stuff. And so it was from going to my first International Mind Forum as well where they really knitted together really beautifully the interactions between the gut, the immune system, the brain, um, and how inflammation in one of those systems affects all the others, you know, it's a really tight marriage. It's not an indirect association. It's very much all intertwined. And it was something that really gave me an opportunity to find a niche, (laughs) but at the same time look at the whole body in a very integrated way. So I really enjoyed that and learned a lot from my years doing that. It's very rewarding work. It's also really intense work, which is why I shifted the focus of my practice a bit. And so now I still do work with children with spectrum disorders, but I do a lot more work with adults who have um, severe and chronic autoimmune conditions, um, a lot of inflammatory gut disorders, um, that kind of thing. So as you might know, you know, autoimmune illnesses have just skyrocketed in their rates in recent years so there's a lot of different factors involved in that but lots of it does come back to the gut Um, and I'm really fortunate because with all my work with children with autism in early years you know 99.9% of them have severe gut stuff going on sometimes actually it's not even presenting obviously but when you look into it and then you address whatever the problems are you start to see these 
systemic benefits and improvements in neurological function and motor function and which will tie into I guess some of the things that we'll talk about today as well so because it's a very passionate community that um, drives that field um, there's a lot of research and um, uh, clinical experience from doctors who have been doing this biomedical work for years there's a lot of that to learn from that doesn't trickle down and uh, to the rest of the you know natural medicine community for five or ten years later kind of thing mm-hmm. so as an example now everyone's talking about methylation and pyrroles but when you know mind first brought speakers to Australia about that in the early 2000s no one else had heard of that yet so it gave me a really um it really changed how I approached all my other patients, not just the children with autism. Yeah. Mm. So, with like gut health is obviously a bit of a buzzword at the moment. Mm. Um, can you explain just for people who haven't heard of gut health or maybe a bit confused about gut health, like what mm-hmm. it is? Yeah. So um, obviously, I am assuming everyone knows what the gut is, but essentially um, it is the tube that starts from your mouth and ends at the anus, okay? So we're all big donuts, basically. And um, it's a pretty important tube because a lot of us think about our gut as being on the inside of the body but very much like a donut hole, it's actually part of our outside world, right? And so because it is a gateway from the outside world to the inside world, there are a lot of immune defences there. Um, in fact, more than 80% of our immune system is in the lining of the gut wall. So as a result, you know, our immune system is what controls inflammation throughout the body. But what is going on in the gut then really affects how inflammation throughout the rest of the body is managed. And so, you know, normally inflammation is a good thing. We have it in short bursts to heal tissue, for example, um, or to kill off infections and that kind of thing because it raises body temperature and causes the redness and swelling and brings immune cells to that area to repair it. The problem that we have these days is we have all these insults and irritations to our gut lining that creates this inflammation where it just doesn't switch off or it doesn't switch off for long. Um, And then we get this whole situation of dysregulated immune system and that can result in many, many, many different um, scenarios. So for some people it can be localized to the gut and you're getting digestive symptoms, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, excessive gas, nausea, reflux, all of those kinds of things. For other people, it can spread out into different systems. So it could be joint pains, um, poor wound healing. It could be um, autoimmune diseases. So Hashimoto's thyroiditis or rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis, all of these things are actually tied back to gut health as well. Um, And then on the other side of immune function, we have things like allergies, sensitivities, all those reactive kind of conditions. So, you know, pretty much regardless of what whatever it is, I often feel like I'm a bit of a broken record because it's like, you know, you've got something going on with your you know with your eyes or your toe or your guts or your joints and it's like well let's let's step back and have a look at what's going on in your gut what's going on in your gut what's what's going on in your gut like that's the question we keep coming back to and I guess it's no surprise really because as I mentioned to you before it's such a gateway for foreign material to come into the body you know food is foreign substance it has to go through this regulated process to get through into the bloodstream um but yeah it is also where we're breaking down all the nutrients that we need to have the building blocks that are required to build our cells and our hormones and our neurotransmitters and our enzymes and everything that our body is built of and everything that our body uses to function 
is built from what we're in, ingesting, digesting, and absorbing. So, yes, it's pretty important to get on top of gut health. And I think maybe like a few other little bits of trivia that just really help to illustrate how intricately entwined the gut is with other systems in the body. If we look at the gut, the immune system, and the brain, for example, as I mentioned before, 80% of our immune system is in the lining of our gut. We also have more neurons or brain cells in our guts than we do in our head brain. So our gut brain is really our bigger brain, right? So the whole thing around trust your gut has physiological um, basis there. Mm. It's not just in our heads. It's not in our heads. <laughs> it's in it's our, in our guts. Gut, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's right. And then we have actually more immune cells in our brain than we have brain cells in our head brain. In our head, there are more immune cells than there are brain cells, so they're called microglia. So when there is inflammation in our guts or if we have leaky guts, then we can pretty much put money on the table that we've got inflammation in our brain or leaky blood-brain barrier as well because there's a lot of the same uh, regulatory mechanisms involved. And then if our gut and our nervous system and it is inflamed and our immune system is overreactive and our immune system is there to protect our whole body as well, then you can just start to imagine that when we do have this inflammation and, you know, particularly when it's stemming from the gut, it can really affect every and any part of our body and our well-being. Mm. So... It's crazy, hey. Pretty <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it's really awesome, but it's just crazy to think, or kind of scary to think, yeah, how big a role our gut plays and that when it's not like functioning well, like, mm. how much can go wrong around that. So yeah. what, like obviously, yeah, if it's not working well, uh, that can be an issue. What are some things that can cause our gut to go out of whack? Mm. So there are a lot of things, I guess, you know, starting off with the basics and the obvious food affects our gut. So what we put into our gut affects the environment of our gut. So what I mean by that is it can, um, if we put too much of a substance into our gut, then our microbes, our gut flora will try to help us by gobbling all of that up. But then that can result in overgrowths of those microbes that then cause problems of their own. Mm -hmm. So that's one example of how food can affect our gut, um, creating what's called dysbiosis basically, so an imbalance of our good and our opportunistic and sometimes bad bacteria. I don't really think that there's any bad bacteria per se. It's just that they're in the wrong location in the wrong numbers. Mm, okay. um, so other things that tend to affect our gut health is stress is a huge one okay so we know that stress affects our digestive function both from a mechanical and a chemical digestion point of view so mechanical digestion is all the the squeezing and the churning and the peristalsis and all the muscular actions of uh, the gut and then chemical digestion is more the production of our enzymes so salivary enzymes pancreatic enzymes and our stomach acids and when we're in that fight or flight mode the production of those uh, digestive chemicals is down regulated because our nervous system is thinking it's more important that we survive whatever this threat is that we're being faced with than breaking down this meal yeah it's funny so, you say that because one of the big things i do in clinic um one of the first things i check and it's similar to what you were saying earlier about you know, all different symptoms, but yet you, say you tend to come back to the gut. Mm. Well, I come back to the gut as well, but from a breathing point of view, I'm mm. always checking how people are, are breathing first and foremost before I fix any biomechanical issues. And that's like making sense to me now because when you start belly breathing and using the diaphragm, you are moving the organs, so you'll be helping that digestive um, like gut health situation yeah. anyway but you start bringing people out of fight or flight as That's well right. I see a lot of parasympathetic yeah. rest and digest autonomic nervous system mode and it's in that autonomic it's in that parasympathetic um 
mode that we can really, or dominance, I guess, that we can really uh, digest our food the best, yeah, when we're more in that sympathetic fight or flight, not so great. No, from a movement point of view, I see people tend to learn better in that state as well, mm. and that makes sense too, right? If you're in fight or flight, you're stressed, your kind of body is thinking like, I don't need Get to learn anything new. I just don't need to run. Worry about new information. That's, that's right. Let's yeah. stick to the old bad habit because we haven't got time to learn a new habit. We need to get out of here for yeah. sure. So the gut's obviously pretty important for yeah, for, for obviously um, like digestion and just general health. But from a movement point of view, um, yeah, I see the gut as a really important um, thing as well from a, a physical point of view that we use our gut Absolutely. posturally correct as well. Yeah, yeah. And so, and there's a few other things that affect it too, like obviously medications um, can have a big impact on the gut. We know that a lot of medications have direct side effects and not really side effects, they're just other effects other than (laughs) what they're they're prescribed for. Yeah. So uh, the most commonly known ones, obviously antibiotics disrupt our gut flora and create leaky gut and a lot of people will get... um, you know, diarrhea or gastric upset after having antibiotics or disruptions in immune regulation. As a result, um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are a big one for um, causing irritation and inflammation to the gut lining, so that's very well documented. Um, And antacids are actually a huge problem these days because a lot of people are prescribed antacids to deal with um, reflux. However, a lot of the time reflux is actually due to perhaps being in that fight or flight state and or not producing enough digestive acids. And so then there's this irritation that occurs in the, in the stomach that um, irritates the sphincter and you get the the esophageal sphincter and then you get this reflux of um, food and acid into the esophagus that causes that burning sensation and pain. But what happens when we have antacids is that blocks more acid production and our stomach acid is incredibly important for many reasons, not just breaking down proteins. Um, We need stomach acid to absorb minerals. We need it to absorb vitamin B12. We also need it as an antibiotic. So basically in our small intestine, it should be very, very low in bacterial growth. It's in our large intestine where we have huge numbers of microbes. Okay. But in our small intestine should be next to none there. And what helps to keep that clear of microbes is really good stomach acid production and really good bile acid production from the liver and then that's stored in the gallbladder and released when you eat fatty food. So if you have low stomach acid and low bile acid production, then you're much more prone to get overgrowth in the small intestine. So that's called SIBO, small intestinal bowel overgrowth, which uh, is becoming a huge problem these days. Yeah, you're hearing more um, and more about that these days yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and in a recent um, medical magazine, it was it's one that's distributed to GPs, and I think it was at the start of this year and it was so like nice to see it in that kind of a publication where they were talking about the problems with these antacid medications and the fact that they can actually reduce lifespan by five, maybe up to ten years. But, yeah, you know, the, the impact on the gut and longevity was significant. And when you're taking antacids, you're not actually dealing with the reason you have the problem in the first place. So it can become this vicious cycle where you need to take it, you know, people are often on them for years and that's just, yeah, not not a good idea if you want to stay well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would, if you're on antacids, my recommendation would be to go see a practitioner who knows how to help you to get off them and to resolve whatever is the underlying problem that was causing the reflux and indigestion in the first place. But that tends to be most conditions these days, doesn't it? Like I know in the I, in the yeah. movement space, you know. Yeah, you know, I think eighty percent of um, 
chronic health conditions are lifestyle and diet related. Uh, so yeah, there's a there's a lot we've got to answer for ourselves. <laughs> and then we tend to want to treat the symptoms rather than actually dig deeper and do some harder work to. to yeah, to looking get back for to that well. magic pill. See, this is where humans are really weird animals mm. because first of all, we forget we're animals. And uh, we see ourselves as separate from nature when really we are as much an animal as any of the other ones out there. And we need to live by the laws and rhythms of nature, otherwise things go wrong. But for some reason we as humans think that we should be able to make up our own rules, eat how we want, create fake foods, consume them and not have any negative consequences and then whinge and moan when, you know, stuff starts going wrong. And it's well, like, well, you yeah. know, if a, if a koala did that or a zebra did that, you know, they'd be having these problems too. And we do see this actually in our pets, right? The, the main kind of group of animals who have chronic um, health conditions are the ones fed by humans, Yeah. Animals out in nature know how to feed themselves. Mm. And tend <laughs> yeah. to do a lot better, don't they? That's right. And that's what we need to relearn to do. We need to relearn that we are part of nature, not separate from it, and we need to get out in the natural world more rather than in these synthetic environments that we've created with artificial light and disconnected from the earth and not touching the soil and not out in the green and, you know, the list goes on. <laughs> and there's more and more research coming out to show us that being in nature um, and, and being in contact with the earth or with the tree, um, Absolutely. You know, eating more naturally, moving more yep. naturally has much, you know, bigger benefits. Yeah, so it's pretty cool to to see that we just like the the magic pill seems to be yeah, like you said, get back to you know, living right. and acting more like like animals. And it do. Is, yeah, and it is magic. Like before you do it, it seems like oh, it can seem like Mount Everest or a a drag and effortful and not enjoyable. But once you start doing it and you start feeling the benefits from it as well, it's like oh this actually feels really good and I'm really enjoying this and how can I do more of it? <laughs> yeah. 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 And, I'm, and, you know, you've touched on an important point there as well. Um, with the getting outside, I've got a good friend who's a pediatrician and she often talks about, you know, she's working with kids on the autism spectrum as well. Um, and so she does see a lot of children with ADD and ADHD too. Um, but she talks a lot about NDD, which is nature deficiency disorder, and so which most of us have now. You know, we're not outside enough and we're inside and on screens and in, in artificial light far too much. Um, so it affects our moods, our behaviours, our inflammation. Like there's studies that show that um, – the process of grounding. So grounding is when you're barefoot on the earth, basically. So on the dirt, on the sand, in the water, but need to be barefoot and not have anything between you and the earth. And it's been shown to have potent antioxidant and anti-inflammatory activity. I mean, like I just find that is mind-blowingly cool. Yeah, <laughs> you know? massively. You need nice. a dose of antioxidants, go walk on the dirt, right? If you're in flames, go walk on the dirt. And that can be the case if you've got, you know, biomechanical foot issues or whether you've got gut inflammation, you know, whatever it is um, that's going to help. And we um, are seeing in research as well that that grounding and being barefoot on the earth helps to relieve pain, helps to improve sleep helps improve moods like there's basically nothing it doesn't improve <laughs> so i think instinctively we probably know that because i know even growing up and as i've learned more i kind of look more into um i guess the reasoning behind it but just going for a swim in the ocean or a surf mm -hmm. like you never get out of the water and yeah, that was a bad of, idea <laughs> yeah and feel like sad and feel like yeah. you're still in like i mean you still may have pain but you, tend, yeah. you feel you get a lift from it, don't you? Yeah, massively. And you know, you normally do feel quite tired after it. Like you, it's just yeah, you, you just, sleep you, well. You feel grounded. Like it's, it's like yeah. grounding is the right word because you do feel grounded and sleep yeah. sleep awesome after a great swim in the ocean. So I think we kind of know it. It's just 
um, as humans again trying to why why do we do what it we can't do? Can't be that simple, you know. We should it should be a pill for this. It can't be as simple yeah. as going for a walk. That's barefoot. right. And we also know that being barefoot and getting grounded too helps to regulate our cortisol levels, right? So. Um, our cortisol is one of our stress hormones and it's got what's called a diurnal pattern so it changes throughout the day and when people are exhausted particularly with adrenal exhaustion that cortisol can kind of flatline basically and that's when you feel like totally flat fatigued no energy no drive no like you know get up and go that kind of thing it can cause low moods um and yeah getting out in nature helps to bring back that diurnal pattern with cortisol uh, cortisol is also really important in terms of sugar metabolism so keeping our blood sugar levels stabilized which then affects our food choices as well right like if we have mm. big blood sugar level dips we're likely to go for stimulants that are going to give us a quick hit of energy we'll crave something like carbs or sugar or something you know starchy and sweet to get a quick hit of energy but then of course blood sugar and cortisol spike up and then they spike down and you're on that roller coaster ride so if you can get your cortisol levels right then you're actually it's easier to make good food choices too because you're not in that point of desperation of mm. feed me now or i'm going to crash yeah 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 right really important yeah um so while we're talking about the outdoors how can or can soil help with our gut health and being outside in nature does that help yeah absolutely hugely i mean we've seen for many years now the hygiene hypothesis um which is indicating that we're living a too clean lifestyle that is devoid of being in contact with dirt basically and you know we're using antimicrobial soaps and sprays and all of these kinds of things um, to add insult to that injury too and as a result of that we see more asthma and eczema and allergies in particular um, there's been some research coming out more recently as well showing the impact of being in soil like connected with soil and your gut microbiome to the point of you can actually um, help your gut microbes by sniffing soil so this is something relatively new that I learned so now when I'm out in places that I know haven't been sprayed with glyphosate <laughs> or any <laughs> other another, another conversation yeah. isn't it yeah exactly um, yeah, so if I'm on a bushwalk or when I was over in the States in July, in July and visiting a friend up in um, Northern California doing some alpine hikes up there and we were there sniffing the soil and <laughs> getting our good bugs in. So, yeah, you know, we really – it's another beautiful way to get earth but also to get probiotics and – even just recently, the week before last, I was staying with um, really good friends of mine up on the Sunshine Coast who have, you know, 50 acres up there but live in a small one-room cabin that's awesome and we built this steam tent um, by the creek and made a sauna in there so it was just on the dirt ground and I hadn't been feeling very good in the week leading up to that I think I was you know too stressed and needed time out and I needed grounding so we built this sauna built this kind of tent made with a frame and blankets and calico and put hot rocks in there that had been heated up in a fire and got some water and essential oils in there and then just like literally rubbed dirt all over god it felt good it felt i did so see good. that on instagram actually that yeah <laughs> that did uh, look pretty good oh uh, it's just like the best medicine you know and it's the same you know i love going in the ocean as well you never go in and go well that was a bad idea or you know you don't feel worse afterwards you're like ah oh, whatever you're feeling you always feel a few notches better yeah it's always easy to let go of the mind and the some of those stresses <laughs> of life you're getting yeah, out in nature. So just thing. for anyone that sees Helen out there sniffing soil, there is science <laughs> behind this. She hasn't lost the plot. <laughs> Some people will argue that, but yeah. <laughs> so our mutual friend Carl had sent a message through um, 
Carl Hemmington. So he'll yeah. I'll actually be trying to get him on soon. He's gonna be another awesome. very interesting person to to chat to. Yeah, um, that's correct. But he'd asked about the effects of microbiome mm-hmm. and the potential effects or nil effects that that may have on fungal issues um, in the body or, or skin. Do you have any comments on that? Any just thoughts or? I've got a couple of thoughts on that, and part of it is from clinical practice, and part of it is my speculation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, if we look at, yeah, foot fungal infections like tinea, athlete's foot, for example, typically, or toenail infections as well, fungal mm. toenail infections. Typically when these happen, like I, I ask all my patients in an initial consult, do they have any of these things? Because while they don't seem like they're close to the gut, it is an indication of what is going on in the gut. So typically if people are getting those infections, there's going to be yeast overgrowths in the gut too. That's kind of where it all stems from. And that's why you can be using topical applications for years on end and they can be really hard to get rid of because you're not actually dealing with the source of the problem. Mm. So in the sense that we know that being in nature and being in dirt positively affects our gut microbiome then that would make sense then that it's going to help prevent things like tinea right or fungal toenail infections on the same um so then into the bit where it's speculation i don't know if there's been any studies done on this but i guess it would make sense if you're bathing your feet in probiotics and that's only going to help with the microbial composition on your skin so, um, and that would surely bolster defences against potential fungal infections. Mm. So I don't know that for sure. I don't know if there's been studies done on that specifically, but it kind of, it intuitively it makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. And it <laughs> but, would explain potentially why some people are more resilient to picking up like fungal infections, yeah, especially absolutely. on the feet. They might be in the same family, you know, and you'll see... Yeah one family member has um, tinea, which can be pretty contagious. They'll be yeah. showering and, and whatever, but the other family member doesn't have any symptoms. Like, so there yeah, could be a correlation. Yeah, people go to there. gyms and yoga studios and there's 30 people having a shower and some people yeah. have, you know, warts and, and um, tinea infections on their feet and some people go, you know, I've spoken to many people over the years, they're like, the moment I use a public shower, I'll get a, a tinea infection yeah. or something yeah. like that. Whereas other people, you know, most people I guess will use thongs or something in public showers, but even if you don't, there are people who will go in there and not have an issue at all. There's more resilience against um, getting such infections. So, yeah, I think a lot of that comes from the state of your gut, the state of your immune system. Do you have any underlying overgrowths or dormant infections and things like that? So do you think, you mentioned warts before, do you think there could be a correlation between warts and gut health as well? Because I see a lot of people that come in um, to the clinic here with, with warts on their feet. Um, yeah. And again, like they might have family members that don't, they might have, just little outbreaks, which can be from stress as well. Yeah. But yeah. do you think there could be a whole gut thing going on there? I think it definitely plays a role from what I've seen. Again, I don't know. I have to do some research on um, whether there is any research on a direct link between mm. the two. If there's not yet, I'm sure there probably will be in coming years Yeah. Uh, because the whole field of research is just growing so much. But um yeah generally speaking you're dealing with an infection right and so again any infection regardless of whether it's a a plantar wart or tonsillitis you know is being managed and fought by your immune system which is mostly in your gut and affected by any inflammation in your gut so yeah and our, the important thing about gut regulation as, and inflammatory regulation is that it largely, the thing that it depends on most is the composition of your gut microbiome. So your gut bugs. Your gut bugs are basically at the switchboard of your immune system dictating how you respond to different things. So 
how you respond to a pathogen, how you respond to a potential allergen, how you respond to a potential toxin, all of those things are largely regulated by your gut bugs. Mm. So a lot more research probably needs to be done to, to see yeah, what else like correlates with all this. Just like at the tip of the iceberg, I mean, there's a lot of it coming out in the last 10 years especially. Um, you know, Hippocrates said hundreds and hundreds of years ago, all disease or all health begins in the gut. And now with science, we're actually starting to see the mechanisms behind that. You know, he was, he was way ahead of his time. He, he really saw the connections there. Um, and I don't know, maybe it was easier to see back then because now we like to compartmentalize everything so much and make everything so complex, but really... Um, we can make things as complex or simple as we like and it can be made very simple. <laughs> so, yeah, which is how we should keep it, right? <laughs> yeah, So exactly. you mentioned um, obviously with poor gut health there's inflammation. Um, can that then obviously inflame things like joints and then affect the way we move? Yeah, very much, very much. So um there's big connections between gut inflammation and um, joint inflammation. There's actually big connections between gluten and rheumatoid arthritis. Um, so gluten we know in 100% of the population, thanks to Professor Alessio Fasano at Harvard. He's a gastroenterologist crush of mine. Uh, he did... <laughs> research showing that in 100% of the population, whether you have a problem with gluten or not, gluten increases gut permeability because it increases this enzyme called zonulin, which increases the gaps between our gut cells, the lining of our gut cells. So um, when that happens, you have this kind of gateway to the rest of the immune system molecules that would normally be too large to be absorbed through the gut wall into the bloodstream can get absorbed. Now, our joint capsules actually have a really similar, um, well, a similar kind of membrane in that gluten can affect the permeability of the joint capsule as well. So um, that's where, you know, I just spoke with someone yesterday actually who had been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. She also has Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune thyroid condition, uh, which is also strongly linked with gluten. And when, you know, she was told basically you're going to have to deal with this for the rest of your life, within four or six weeks of stopping gluten, absolutely no joint pain. She'd had debilitating joint pains and loss of movement in her hands. And, yeah, so this is just one um example of how food and leaky gut can affect our joint health. Um, also, when we have inflammation in the gut, what happens is um, it's, basic, it's what's called visceral inflammation, so inflammation of the organs in the abdomen. And this happens with the gut, but it also happens with in, uh, pelvic inflammatory disorders. Um, it happens with things like endometriosis, fibroids, uh, so women have more issues with um, visceral inflammation in general than men do. But when we do have any of this visceral inflammation, what it does is it actually inhibits our stabilizer muscles in our core. And if we um, have inhibition of those stabilizer muscles, then our skeletal muscles try to step in to compensate for that. But our skeletal muscles are not made for for that role and they don't do a very good job of it so that's when you get muscle tension pain tightness um, you often will get lower back pain is a very common sign of visceral inflammation so inflammation of your gut or um, pelvic organs and then as you would know this is getting more into your realm then when you don't have that core stability, maybe your glutes aren't firing properly, maybe your adductors aren't firing properly, maybe they're too tight or not not firing enough. Um, that can translate to knee problems and ankle problems and foot issues and, you know, because you're 
bums not firing, you might get bunions, you know. So yeah. that's just one example of many in terms of um, how it can affect our joints, our stability, our balance. Um, yeah. So, again, far, far-reaching. It's crazy, though, because, like, again, like I normally start in the gut when I'm fixing movement because I, the importance of a strong, stable core is mm. evident in, in babies, right? They don't, they, they can't roll over um, mm. or go to crawling positions or up to even standing until they can own each position with the core being strong and them owning the yeah. breathing. So if we're inhibiting core muscles, we're essentially taking away the first thing we need to develop as kids to be able to you know, go into bigger movement patterns. We're then mm-hmm. taking that away as adults or even as kids and hoping that everything else will come and pick up the yeah. pieces. But what I see clinically um, quite often is lots of compensation patterns. Like someone will come in with, say, heel pain or you know, knee pain, whatever the symptom is. And, again, as humans, we get so focused on that pain and wanting to fix that. Mm. one thing and this is where I, I constantly get stuck into arguments around orthotics and things because yeah sure we can prop it up and take away your symptom but yeah there's always something higher up that tends to be exactly uh, causing the issue yeah and here's just another prime example of um that yeah can be further up in the core or whatever but we need to look even deeper that it could be the food we're eating that's actually turning the core off not just yeah. you know, like physical things that we're doing to turn it off, there can be a, a food um, yeah. link there as well. So the food side of it, which is why I was really excited to talk to you today, is that we can't not look at food right. and, and gut health when we're looking at movement patterns as well and, and physical um, well, physical pains in the sense of like movement pains like yeah. um, you know, knee, and hip, ankles. Yeah, and if people are having movement pain or prone to injury, uh, just a little side note before I get onto that, I mean, you see this a lot, for example, in kids who have dyspraxia, you know, who uncoordinated movement and are constantly knocking themselves because they're walking into things or, you know, they'll end up with bruises or they fall over when they're running and all of this kind of thing. And a lot of that can come back to gut health again because that core stability isn't Mm. there, right? Um, but, yeah, then if we're looking at uh, chronic pain or injuries that won't heal, um, that's going to be a very long, drawn-out and possibly never-ending process if you don't deal with nourishing your body with what it needs. So minimising inflammatory foods, having gut-healing foods, making your gut lining, making sure your gut lining is healed and sealed so you're not... Um, triggering a systemic inflammatory response um, and also making sure that you're eating those nutrient-dense foods with the comp- with the nutrients in there that you need to actually rebuild those tissues, you know. It doesn't just happen like that. <laughs> you need the right mm. building blocks, you know. It's like if you're building a house, what are you going to build it with? Are you going to get some, you know, rubbishy material that's going to blow over as soon as there's a storm or some rain or are you going to get some good quality material and build a fortress kind of thing? It's the same thing when you are recovering from injury. You want to put the best ingredients in so that you can build the strongest structure. Yeah, definitely. With um, building better, better tissue, you've got a great blog on your website around um, mm. nutrition for healthy connective tissue, yeah, um, which right. I'd highly recommend reading. It's it's a really good read um, and explains that really well. But just quickly for those who may um, want to know now, they haven't got time to wait to jump <laughs> yeah. on your website and, and read through all the gold on there. Um, yeah. What is connective tissue and how can food nourish um, our connective mm-hmm. tissue? So connective tissue is what holds us together, right? Without it, we'd we'd be a mess, <laughs> quite <Yeah>. literally. <laughs> yeah. We wouldn't we wouldn't be held together. Our connective tissue is our bones, our skin, our ligaments and tendons, our fascia. You know, the stuff that holds all the different um, parts of us together is made of connective tissue. And um, to build good connective tissue, we need good quality collagen, basically, which we um, can get 
directly from certain foods like bone broth, for example, or meats that have um, the kinds of meats that you need to slow cook rather than, um, you know, your prime cuts of steak. You want the meats that have all the connective tissue in them, so the jointy bits. Mm -hmm really good sources um they're rich in amino acids like glycine for example so we need lots of that for connective tissue repair vitamin c is incredibly important for connective tissue repair so um best sources for that well in australia we've got actually the highest source vitamin c food in the world that we know of so far and that's the kakadu plum um so most commonly that's available in powdered form but if you're lucky you might find it in some gourmet delis or good health food stores in the freezer or if you're in outback australia then go for it (laughs) um but otherwise fermented foods uh fermented veggies are a fantastic source of vitamin c so with vitamin C in cabbage, for example, you'll be, get between 50 and 100 times more vitamin C from fermented cabbage than you do from raw or cooked cabbage, and that happens with all the other veggies too. So getting those fermented foods in um, not only provides enzymes and probiotics but also lots of vitamin C. Uh, zinc is very important, and it's something that we see in Australia and New Zealand. There's huge problems with zinc deficiencies because there's not a lot of zinc in our soil in these countries and so it's very hard to get adequate intake in and the best source of zinc is oysters by a mile so a weekly dozen oysters would be great if you're in a place where you can get some nice good quality oysters um, I love South Coast oysters personally from from <laughs> Marimbula yum <laughs> um So, yeah, oysters are fantastic in terms of zinc. The next best sources of zinc are beef and venison. And then we're going down the line to things like pumpkin seeds. Um, So, yeah, but the difference between that and oysters is massive. I can't remember the milligrams off the top of my head, but it's a big difference. Um, And what else? Things like manganese, um, magnesium is important as well. There's a whole host of mineral cofactors that we need, but the the top guns would be the vitamin C, the zinc, uh, the collagen, things like the glycine, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, bone broth is like one of the most amazing foods for healing Mm. not only the gut but also helping with joint um, and tissue injuries as well. So people that are hypermobile and have um, sort of too much movement around joints, do you think um, upping their intake of like bone broths and all these things you just spoke about could potentially help uh, with yeah, hypermobile poten- people? Yeah, could potentially help and put- very important to make sure that there isn't um, any chronic gut inflammation going on because that inflammation will increase um the mobility of the ligaments as well this is one reason like for example throughout the menstrual cycle our ligament tension changes right so Mm. particularly during menstruation there's um inhibition that results in um, the tendons and ligaments being looser, basically. So women are actually more prone to injury, particularly lower back injury while menstruating. So it really, you know, kind of irks me (laughs) when people, women and men, go in with the attitude of, doesn't matter if you got your period, you can still, you know, it's no different from any other day or you just push it as hard today as any other day. It's like, actually, no, this is not the time of the month for you to be doing that. Mm. Again, as with everything in nature, there are rhythms and cycles and we're not meant to be on the same, um, in the same gear all day, let alone all week or month or year, you know. So there's those monthly cycles as well. So it's really important to, you know, honour and respect that and do appropriate gentle movement during that time where you're not likely to injure yourself. Mm, really good advice there. I've never really thought about that in that mm. way, but that's that makes a lot of sense. So important. Yeah. yeah. So when we... Uh, first met it was at the wellness couch event in uh, Kayama 
you were speaking down there at that event and you made everyone get their shoes off and had pretty much advocated that everyone should be moving barefoot, uh, mm. especially in nature. Mm. And we were chatting about obviously even barefoot things and, and the garden, some of that linkage um, there when we met. I noticed you wear a lot of uh, barefoot shoes where possible. We, we had a chat about that. Can you just to wrap wrap up, can you explain uh, your barefoot journey mm. and I guess how it came about, how you incorporate it these days into your your life yep. and, and the benefits yep. that you, you see from it? Mm-hmm. For sure. So it's been probably, you know, going on 10 or 11 year journey for me in that respect. Um, I, well, it started, I guess, at a very young age, I always had a lot of biomechanical issues, joint pains. Like when I was in primary school, I got tested to see if I had rheumatoid arthritis. In in hindsight, I can tell that it would have been the gluten, knowing how I respond to gluten now. However, at the time, that was not known. Um, but, yeah, always had joint pains. Like if I played tennis, I'd get a sore elbow. If I went swimming, I'd get sore elbows or shoulders. It would, it would really frustrate me and to a lesser degree because it's not such a problem now but at times it still does because I do love being active. I do love being outdoors but I'd find that, oh, my gosh, I've got something else that's causing pain now. What's going on? Anyway, I injured myself while I was hiking in 2007 or eight. I think it was the start of 2008 and um I love hiking. It's like that's my soul food. I love getting out in the bush, everything I need on my back, stay out there for days. It's like it's the ultimate earthing experience, right? So um, on a hike I injured my leg where basically my fibula head on my right leg dislodged as I slid down a boulder and my foot got stuck and I had to walk on that for the rest of the day, sat in a creek that evening to, as my ice <laughs> was not enjoyable at all and was in a lot of pain walking out the next day. And that was really basically a 10-year journey that really only resolved um, February last year. So... When that initially happened, I was wearing, you know, the hardcore hiking boots that are, you know, coffins for your feet. And now well, as we like, should, though, isn't it? That's what we're supposed to wear, apparently. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the gold standard of hiking boots has mm. been these things that you can't twist or bend and have ankle support so you can't even move your ankle. And it's like, no one, you know, it's, it's a recipe for disaster, basically. Anyway, from that point, I basically couldn't wear shoes without being in pain. I had to be either barefoot or wearing five fingers, Vibram five fingers. Um, you know, to, for years I wore them to work every day in the office as well. You know, I just I would not wear shoes because even the softest runners that had heaps of flexibility, I'd put them on and I'd it made my feet feel feel dumb is how I would explain it. My feet just felt dumb because what as I got used to being barefoot and <laughs> that's, the, that's the best. <laughs> yeah, well, they just what what I learned from being barefoot and wearing five fingers is your feet pick up so much information from the ground, so much information, and they send that information up to your brain and your brain sends that information back down to your muscles to say you need to fire your glute here and this muscle there and you know it's telling you what you need to do to stay balanced and stable and when I put shoes on it was like my feet had blindfolds and earmuffs on like they couldn't pick up any information to send to my brain my brain couldn't tell my muscles to fire so, and then I would end up in pain. And it just became, yeah, blaringly obvious once I got used to that. So then I was working with Czech trainers, um, a guy in Sydney initially, and then I moved to New Zealand and I was living in New Zealand for four and a half years. And that's where I met Carl Hammington, one of your other guests. And he's just 
a phenomenal biomechanic. Like I have mm. so much respect for him and he really looks at biomechanics from a very holistic point of view as well, taking into account, you know, your stress levels, your sleep, what you've eaten that day. Do you have your period? You know, like all of those things that so many trainers and biomechanics just don't look at but play fundamental roles in how your your body works, how your body mm. moves. So, yeah, did a lot of work with him, had to kind of learn to run. I could never run without getting shin splints um, and running with bare feet. You know, the first little running exercise I did was 10 laps of 30 seconds and I couldn't walk for four days because my calves were so sore because it was the first time I'd actually used those muscles for running, you know. So, yeah, there's just it's been a big journey and then, I tested it out a couple of years ago with a hike on Kangaroo Island and then last year in February, March, I (laughs) had a big mission to accomplish. Ten years ago, just at the time I injured my leg, I decided I wanted to climb Mount Aspiring in New Zealand and then this happened and I was like, there's no way that's possible at this point of time. Anyway, decided to do it, have a friend who's a mountaineering guide and he took me up there. It was a 24-hour expedition from leaving the hut to getting back to the hut. And on the practice days beforehand, we were abseiling into crevasses and ice climbing out and practicing um, arrests like if we fall down a slope because obviously snow and ice is slippery. And on those practice days, my leg was starting to hurt and I thought, oh, gosh, I don't know how this is going to play out. But at the same time, I thought, I have got this far. I do not want to not do this. Mm. And I said to Gavin, my guide, um, I said, and I'm not a drug taker. Like I don't not I don't like taking painkillers. I don't like taking anything unless it's an emergency, obviously. That's a different situation. Um, but I said to him at that point, I think you need to make sure that you've got the like hardcore painkillers with you when we go up because I'm going to need them coming down because that's, it only hurt coming down. And anyway, it (laughs) was, um, one of those kinds of fun that you don't enjoy at the time, but afterwards you're glad you did it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was an incredibly challenging climb. Um, it was like doing 12 hours of heel uh, toe raises or heel raises, you know, calf yeah. raises in um, ice climbing gear with crampons on and climbing up. I can't remember now how many pitches of rope. Um, and I was so physically mentally emotionally exhausted by the time I got to the top and I had my first panic attack as this ever in my life as the sun was going down I was like crying and it's not coming out of my nose and like please call a helicopter anyway he did not call a helicopter I was tempted to throw one of my crampons off the mountain so he'd have to because that's deemed an emergency um (laughs) I didn't and to be honest I don't know what it was I don't know if it was the catharsis that because there was a lot of screaming and and swearing going up in areas where I thought this is beyond my capability so there was um yeah a lot of emotional expression on the way up the mountain um whether it was that whether it was the 12 hours of calf raises that repaired it whatever it was I don't know but going down I didn't have any pain at all which was quite remarkable and then only like two weeks ago when I went through the little patch of not feeling so great that I mentioned before that was the first time my leg hurt since then and I was like oh that's interesting but it only lasted a day and it went away and and my gut was not feeling good that day Mm. there you go what an achievement though but no parasites so yeah that's like that's been my journey (laughs) part of what an amazing achievement thank you getting over the mountain and and back oh, down. <laughs> pretty, it was pretty awesome, yeah. So, yeah, I can highly recommend doing that kind of uh, an adventure. First light guiding if you're keen to check it out. <laughs> awesome. And during that time of the, 
well, obviously barefoot was feeling better. Were you doing exercises around your feet to build mm-hmm. strength? And it wasn't just a matter of um, solely the barefoot shoes. Oh, um, no, yeah. It was, you know, the work that I did with Carl and other trainers was really to, you know, get glutes activating, get mm-hmm. the right muscles activating, get um, get my joints aligned. You know, there's been a lot. I worked on every levels, but definitely strength and um, stability training for sure. And then, yeah, a lot of emotional work, spiritual work, like, you know, when it's something that stops you from doing what you love, it brings up a lot. So you you address it in any and every way that you can. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's really important to note that like, it is a journey. You mentioned it's been mm. 10 years, like, and it's not always that it's a super hard journey. It's just something, I guess it's the same with gut health. Um, I see it with um, like movement, corrective mm. health. It's mm. something that you need to commit to, create more of a lifestyle around it and yeah. um, you actually choose that way of wanting to, to yeah, live and move. And, it, yeah, And it gets... Generally speaking, it gets easier along the way. Obviously, in life, there's always going to be road humps and challenges, but... But they're just there to make us want it more, isn't it? It's to check that we still want that. Exactly. And I think all you have to do, and this is why I run programs like 9v9, which is on at the moment, because it's just an opportunity for you to experience how bringing in one single change in your lifestyle can elicit a lot of positive impacts. And when you start to feel like, oh, that actually made a difference and I feel better, it gives you more inspiration to do more. And so it starts giving you energy. Like initially to make change, we usually need a bit of discipline and motivation and motivation requires you to give energy, right? It requires um, effort. But Mm. inspiration, once you start getting inspired because you see or more importantly you experience the impact of your choice, that gives you energy. So then it becomes an adventure, you know. Mm. Then you can enjoy the process more. And, yes, there will be times where it's like, oh, this bit's hard again or I don't know if I can do this bit. But then you do it and you're like, oh, that was awesome. And, you know, it just keeps unfolding. So I feel so much better now than I did 20 years ago. And I would like to continue that pattern, you know, for many decades to come. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Um, so you mentioned nine v nine. Oh, you're getting old. Things start going wrong. Thing like you know, we can do a lot to look after ourselves. Oh, definitely, and we need to take that mindset on more. I think you mentioned nine v nine. Just to finish up, can you? I know it's on now. Um, yeah, but this is something that keeps. Yeah, so we run so it can... a few times a year, and we're looking at creating an evergreen, so a a version of it that will be available all year. But we do group ones a few times throughout the year. And basically 9v9 is just a nine-day challenge to eat nine cups of veggies a day for those nine days. And because regardless of what your dietary approach or philosophy is, the biggest deficit in most people's diet is not enough veggies. And there are so many important phytonutrients, minerals, antioxidants, all those kinds of things in plant foods that have massive impacts on our health and well-being that it's just so important that we get more of them in. And the differences that people feel in just nine days, that's why I kept it at nine days as well, is because it's short enough that it's easy to commit to but it's long enough that you really get to notice some big changes mm. so yeah it just every time it blows me away all the feedback that we get from people it's really awesome so we're right smack bang in the middle of it now but we'll be running another one in february perfect and where can people find 9v9 so they can find that at patternhealth.teachable.com and you'll see details for that and the gallbladder flush there. Perfect. And your website? HelenPatteron.com. Which you should definitely check out because, there's, like you. I said earlier, there's yeah heaps of gold on there, um, yes. including the books that you've yeah. been a part of. Yeah, which... so the books are... Um, 
I've written Baba Yum Yum with Charlotte Carr and Pete Evans. It's available on Amazon in print and on iTunes as well. We've got the Complete Gut Health Cookbook and I've written a couple of chapters in Clinical Naturopathic Medicine, which is a textbook, so that's more for practitioners rather than um, the public. But yeah, <laughs> Not an aeroplane read. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, if, <laughs> <laughs> and if people want to connect with you on social media, which, again, I really advise you do because you're always putting up cool things, what you're up to, especially your Insta stories, there's lots of educational pieces on there too. How can yeah. people connect with you? So both on Instagram and Facebook, my handle is at Helen Patteron. Easy as that. Easy. So yeah. thank you very much for coming on today. I've learned a lot. I'm sure people listening in uh, would have learned a lot also. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been my pleasure to be here. Such an honour. Thank you very much. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.